0: State of the Industry Podcast.
1: And here we go.
0: This episode is brought to you by the KP Movement Institute offering online and in-person coaching services for those seeking pain-free movement, peak athletic performance, or to improve their overall health. Whether you've been training for years or are just starting out, the coaches at the KP Movement Institute will create a personalized training solution that fits your specific needs. Not only will you optimize your movement and function, but you'll be educated, empowered, and inspired towards a healthier and more active lifestyle. Contact info at kineticperformance.ca to set up your complimentary consultation today. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. This week, we have part two of my conversation with Josh Hankin, the founder and co-creator of Ultimate Sandbag Training. Josh is a certified strength and conditioning specialist with over 20 years of experience in the fitness industry. He is highly sought after for his innovative functional training concepts that combine current science and real world application. His innovative dynamic variable resistance training or DVRT system provides a systematic approach to improving human performance. He has worked with athletes from the NBA, NHL, NFL, as well as high school athletes and weekend warriors, and he has also presented in more than 13 countries at some of the top fitness conferences in the world. Now, our conversation continues from part number one, where we discuss the importance of understanding context and intent when it comes to training and the use of specific tools, the seven basic foundational patterns, and how he looks at progressing exercises and movements. We also dive into talking about force production versus force absorption and why it's important that every single client has these two aspects in their program. I highly suggest that you check out their DVRT system. It truly is a great program that is going to change the way that you look at movement and think about movement. Now, if you haven't listened to part number one, I suggest you go back and listen to that first, but if you already have, then I'll see you on the other side. All right, I'd like to welcome back Josh Hankin to the State of the Industry podcast, part number two, and I want to pick up right where we left off, talking about the sling systems a little bit. And so just to give us kind of a Coles Notes definition of like, what are we talking about when we're talking about sling systems? And then we'll kind of dive into a little bit of the kind of concept and training of
1: them. Sure, it's really important because I think it's becoming a more and more popular topic, but a really poorly understood one. I'd love to tell you I had the genius of like thinking about sling systems ever since I was a coach, but that wasn't the case. Um, in the late nineties, I, I said that my basketball career ended because of my back injury. So I have a super, I have a very diseased spine. So I was diagnosed at 14. My, my spine is just basically collapsing to put in a very easy way to understand. So I lost my leg twice in my life. So even at 20, um, I was, I stopped playing basketball. I was disqualified because of the injury, but I was still in lots of pain. So I went down this massive hole. That's how I got into corrective exercise was. I was just trying to help myself, Yeah. right? Being 20 and feeling as horrible as I did, wasn't fun. And so I got down to a lot of different professionals and if they referenced the book, I'd get the book and I'd read the book. And these weren't, you know, this is predating blogs, how old I am again. But so it's usually like a textbook, yeah. which are not easy reads, right? So one of the books that I got was actually recommended as, uh, she's a Canadian physical therapist named Diane Lee I'm very well respected. Yeah. And in, I'm going through her book. Her book was the pelvic girdle and I'm like, Oh my God, my head's hurting. Cause this is like really intense information. This is textbook information. Yeah. And, but one thing that just jumped out at me was she had this discussion at the time she was calling them inner and outer units. And just so people understand the outer unit would be more like your big muscles that you typically think of like your quads and your pecs and your chest, you know, and the inner unit are all these deep stabilizers uh, that have to work cohesively, right? And she started laying the foundation. She started talking about the work by Andre, Andre Fleming, who's done the most research on sling systems. And these mm-hmm. were specific chains of the body that have to work together to create movement. And yeah. if you had a break in these chains, that could explain pain, dysfunction, and so forth. So it was really relevant information, right? It was like, yeah. oh, okay, this is, this is relevant to me. The only problem was like the way Diane, Diane's background is more like yoga based. And so her lens was yoga, which wasn't my thing. So I just looked at this. I'm like, cool, but I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And it literally took me, I'd love to tell you I was a genius, but it took me like eight years to figure out like what to actually be doing with this information. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten away from it during that period. Like, I'm like, that's cool, but I don't know what, like what that means. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, that, that period that I'm like, oh, I get it. And so what does it mean I get? It. So a couple of key concepts. So in, in strength training, because of how we're taught, we think everything is a strength issue, Yeah. right? Oh, I got, I got my back hurt because my glutes aren't strong enough. That's actually not what the research shows us. Research time and time again tends to lean the way that the reason we get hurt is a motor control issue, meaning a muscle within a chain did not turn on at the right time. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that's weak, It just didn't turn on the right time. There's some programming issue that caused that muscle not to work when it's supposed to. And that's why the bodybuilding issue is a problematic one. Right. Because if I approach that, if my lens is bodybuilding isolation, I can work the heck out of that muscle, but then I might not see it reflected in that person performing better because I'm trying to address a motor control issue with a strength solution. Yeah. Right. So, that's one thing, and and of course now it's been morphed. It's been hijacked by people for marketing. And now everyone's talking about like, oh, I do sling system training. So you have the people that do really novel looking exercise and call it sling system training, and then you have the the people that are arguing against it, going, it doesn't matter because if you whenever you move, you use the slings. Yeah, and they're both kind of true, right? So the person, the, the group that's going, oh, you don't need to worry about this because it's not like you can you, you can't not train your slings, right? Yeah. Whenever you're moving, they're active. That's correct to a degree in that you can't isolate a fascial line. Like, I see a lot of fascial line expert trainers. They're like, see, this is an exercise for this sling. I say, I talk that way sometimes just because it's too overwhelming information for people to go, but it's also this one, this one, and this one. Like, you can emphasize, maybe that's a better word for it, emphasize the quality of a specific sling, but you can't isolate it. They're always active at once. Yeah. But what I would argue against the people that go, it doesn't matter is that. Once you start seeing these chains in action and you see compensatory movement patterns occur, now you have a much better insight to why that might be happening. So now you may target exercises or the use of specific tools to help reconnect that broken chain. Yeah. And then we start seeing that person move better. Now on the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the novelty people, like you gotta be spinning and twirling and you know, throwing things up in the air and catching them on <laughs> one finger to to, to do fashion line. And that's not it either, right? Yeah. A lot of that stuff is and, and some of it may be relevant, but super high level stuff that's unnecessary. And and I don't, it's like my question to them is where do you start people? Like, yeah, right. Like it's just And they're just almost trying to get shock value. And they're very dogmatic, right? What's the dogmatic thing I hear from those people is, oh, there's no such thing as resisting rotation because your body rotates. Yeah, you resist rotation. That's why your obliques look like a corset.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? You have to limit the amount of movement you have in your body. If you have all this unwanted movement happening, you're going to get compensatory movement again in a different way. So swings basically at, at the heart of things are just a way of understanding how the body functions better. So then we can create exercises that address muscles, but also movement in a more efficient and effective manner.
0: Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it starts to appreciate the connectedness of everything in the body. And that, as you said, things don't work in isolation. We can try to emphasize a certain muscle or muscle group movement, but we we can't. and even when when i first like so you were talking about you know it took you 8 years to kind of figure it all out and really understand the 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 fascial system when i first started looking at it like you're looking at a book with a dissection of this thickening of fascia right. and there's nothing else there and i'm just sitting there i'm like and i'm looking at this and i'm thinking to myself well this looks very similar to all the muscle images I've seen in all the anatomy textbooks I've looked at throughout my university career in that it's like taken out of context as well, right? So understanding that there are thickenings of fascia along lines of force, but they're still all interconnected with everything else within the body. And so I like that you mentioned that they're not separate. You can't just work one and then have the other ones not working. They're all working. They're just working uh to a certain degree that's going to allow them to accomplish whatever task you've set out or uh, exercise or movement pattern you have them doing
1: absolutely and the best example i've ever heard is is if you imagine you're wearing a sweater right and you see a little thread of the sweater come out Mm -hmm. you tug on that thread you notice how the whole sweater changes if you pull the thread out the whole sweater starts to fall apart yeah it's kind of that thing you know it's it's the idea of like you're pulling on the thread so it's important you just have to put in the right context and understand how you're going to use that information so it's going either extreme is not going to lead you down a better path. Like people ask me, well, how do I do a fascial exercise? I go, well, they're all fascial exercises. <laughs> it, it, you're not understanding, you know, the move, what what's real intent is. So again, it just, it just helps us build better exercises and better progressions with people. And then they, and they think it's magic. Cause uh, what's the Arthur C. Clark saying magic is a science people don't understand yet. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like, we create all this better mobility or stability or strength or, whatever it may be in a couple of exercises because we've just reconnected those broken chains.
0: Yeah. So let's just so uh, the listeners have a little bit of an idea about you kind know, of where to start with some of these. Um, can you just walk through, like we talked about the lateral, uh, we talked about the front functional, back functional. Uh, do you mind just kind of walking through them and like, where would you start somebody? So if you see somebody who like, maybe you just use a couple of examples of, okay, you see somebody who's got an issue with this and this pattern, or they, they have this compensation, right? Maybe we kind of, you know, start them at this point to work our way up from there.
1: Okay. So it's um, a good question. There, there's a couple of easy ways to do so. A lot of people, let's take overhead pressing maybe as a good example. And everyone's a lot of people are scared of pressing overhead because of their shoulder issues, right? Yeah. So we have to, start to, we have to start to dive into is it a shoulder issue or is it a chain issue? And this is what I mean. Your, your shoulder works with your trunk because imagine your upper body is dependent upon everything below it. Yeah. The best way to think about your core is a communication system of the upper and lower body to each other. Mm-hmm. So if the core is not working well, that connection is gonna be broken. It's kind of like on your phone, if you call your wife and the connection's bad and you're like getting upset with each other because you can't hear each other, like things just yeah. get worse. It's kind of the same thing with your body. That's why, that's why the core is such a point of emphasis. So it's connected to that core, but it's also connected to that opposite lower body. So if people are trying to fix a shoulder issue in overhead pressing by lying on a bench and doing reverse flies, they're missing the point. Yeah. Now taking away the core and the lower body so, yeah, you're working the shoulder, but that shoulder may have a problem in the chain. and You're not addressing the chain. So now I might put you in a half kneeling position, for example. So it's but imagine the bottom of a lunge. So your knee is resting on the ground, right? Yeah. So why am I going to put you there? You're slightly unstable, right? If it's too unstable, I'd put you in something else. But we're just going to use this for example, sake. So the reason I want to put you in that position is because I want to see is that shoulder issue. Now I ask you to press. If you press and you're ribs flare up and you go to lumbar extension or you really shift to the side In doing so i know you know you don't know how to connect the chain so diane lee has this great saying the victims, uh the criminals never scream as loud as the victims
0: yeah
1: right so that shoulder pain could be a core dysfunction it could be a opposite hip dysfunction could be a foot dysfunction so now i would first teach you the first thing i tell people is we're gonna teach you how to use your hands and your feet Mm -hmm. the reason we do that is because that's your first contact with the outside world So everything starts to work inwards then from there. So, you know, instead of saying, telling people to squeeze their glutes, I don't say that anymore. Because it's not like you're walking down the street and you're like, no, I haven't been doing it. Squeezing my glutes is way better, right? Your glutes are a byproduct of what happens at the foot. Yeah. So if I can get you to start using your foot correctly and now you create a stability, a stable base, everything up the lower leg, the upper thigh, the pelvis starts to get stable. So you can think of it as your core has to be stabilized from the bottom up and the top down so the foot is from the bottom up and the hands are from the top down so now i have to teach you proper gripping position where you're placing your elbows i want you to press with your lat not your shoulder because i want you to press with your whole body not an isolated joint because your shoulders are quite small yeah so the now within that if we want to get geeky i can talk about the anterior posterior slings i can talk about the lateral subsystem and so forth but i'm giving the client specific tasks that they don't even know that's my goal but yeah. they're feeling stronger when they press and they're feeling more stable with their press. And 99.9% of the time I get, oh, my shoulder feels a bit better. If I did all those things and your shoulder still was a mess, you might have a sh- shoulder structural issue. But I, I tell you, even those people that do have an issue feel usually significantly better if we just teach them how to use their body more efficiently. I don't talk to my clients in the term of the chains. I tell them what I need them to do as far as a task that connects those chains. Yeah. So, and I put them in the right environment so that getting feedback to understand how and why they need to do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so with regards to the sandbag, which is one of the, the primary tools that I, I know you teach on a lot and you guys use a lot in your DVRT training, how does that then allow you to do that? So to start training the chains in different ways without you know focusing specifically on one individual muscle? Because I've I've watched a lot of videos, as I said, I've been to a few conference sessions that you've done. And so just so people, if people aren't familiar with the use of that, how does that allow you to then work with those sling systems and integrate the movement patterns a little bit more
1: easily? Sure. And, you know, so it goes back to what we talked about with progressive overload in the first series. So if I were just to focus on the load position on your body the body position you use when you lift and the planes of motion we're working in, that could serve as a very important base. So if we get those three variables as our baseline, then everything else will make more sense. So if we take a simple example of a, of a hip hinge. So if, instead of having you, when you hip bridge, putting a weight on your hips, I'm going to put it over, the, over your chest. I'm going to use our smaller ultimate sandbag because we have dimension as a variable in our program. Mm-hmm. And they have handles on the side. I want you to try to break the handles apart. That's what I tell my client. In doing that, what occurs is you start to get the lats engaged and the lats are a big core stabilizer. If you look at the only muscle that connects the upper body to the pelvis, the lower body, it's a big core stabilizer. So if I can get you to use your lats and doing that action, you start to brace your core, which is in referenced Dr. Stuart McGill talks about that's how we gain stability. Now, when we hip bridge, I'm now building up my glutes, right, but I'm also tying them together with the chains that they actually function with. So that would be our like, our baseline hip bridge, mm-hmm. right? So I've shifted where the load is and how we use the load to make better connections. So now if I wanted to challenge the movement, I could start to bring the load more overhead by keeping that tension. So now I'm forcing your core to work harder to avoid extending your torso so that you're learning how to brace for when I do higher level movements. If I do a power clean, I need to powerfully extend my body without losing the position of my trunk. Yeah. And then I can start adding other elements. So, I, so, if I pick up one foot, I'm now bringing locomotive skills, right? Yeah. I have to resist rotation and frontal plane movement from the bottom up. So, that foot has to create stability, that hip has to create stability. And then I could add a diagonal lift and chop. So, a diagonal movement pattern because our body is basically one big top that you would spin, right? Yeah. I said that works in opposites. That's a natural pattern. So now I can connect shoulder, core, and hip in the same pattern as I would walk, run, so forth. But the client experiences a very difficult glute exercise and a really challenging core exercise. Yeah. So I know I'm building more sophisticated strength, but I'm also giving them what they want in feeling their glutes being hyperactive and their core being hyperactive. They yeah. feel like that is being beneficial. For them, clients often function off feel, yeah. right? Yeah. So I feel that it's therefore valuable. Now we know that's not necessarily the case, but I've tricked them into feeling what I want them to feel that's actually making them learn how to move better. Now, if I bring that, you know, now to an upright position with a hip hinge, you said it earlier, most people either have load and or volume at their disposal. They either do more reps or they do more load, right? Yeah. Well, if I build up my deadlift most people just go heavier and heavier and heavier, but we know there's a plateau to that, yeah. right? But if I can change now the load being in the crooks of my arm and I can try to break the bag apart, I've just created a plank in my upper body. I have a more challenging hip hinge where now the muscles have to resist flexing as I go into the hip hinge. So I still have in a sagittal plane movement, but I've asked these chains to work harder because I placed the load in a more challenging position. Mm-hmm. A very easy visual example is if we were to take a squat, If I just have you squat up and down, people think of squat as a sagittal plane lift because it is. But if I put the load upon one shoulder and ask you to squat as though you're equally loaded, if you can't prevent lateral deviation or rotation of the pelvis, you don't actually have strength in that squat pattern as I need you to have, Yeah. right? Because I'm not always gonna be able to squat in that perfect alignment position. So I've introduced what? Other planes of motion, other chains. Maybe it's a weakness in the lateral subsystem. It's one of those diagonal chains that aren't working right that can't prevent the rotation. Mm -hmm. So I start to see pattern. I look for patterns of consistency. So if I see something happen in one exercise, I'm almost curious, does it happen in another one too? Right? That's the detective work, right? If I see it just one time, that might be a technical, you know, problem, might be a technique, right? Might be just learning or something like that. But if I see it happen over and over again, I'm like, now I'm confident that this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. So the change just the the understanding of the sling system and change is give me direction of what am i looking for and then how am i going to progress people because again why do people struggle from going to from bilateral to unilateral deadlifts is because it's a lousy progression
0: (laughs) yeah
1: yeah right so there's so many things in between and if we show that we build those wins for people they get stronger they don't hurt we have a more successful client we get them to achieve what they want and what we want for them as the coach
0: yeah yeah i love to say that um, personal training is A task and tricking clients to doing what you want them to do while thinking they're doing what they want to do, right? What feels good to them. So let's talk a little bit about uh, force absorption now, because I think this is a big piece of programming that uh, a lot of trainers overlook because uh, they're so stuck in, you know, using the stuff that they have in the gym, from dumbbells to kettlebells to uh, to barbells. Not to say that any of those are wrong, but they don't necessarily add force absorption in there. They stick to just, you know, the basic, you know, squat deadlifts, you know, kind of exercises. So first, what's the importance of this force absorption concept for clients? Like why do clients need the ability to
1: absorb force? So one of the reasons that we don't appreciate is because well, not that a lot of trainers generally look at for research, but most of the research is going to focus upon force production. Yeah. Right. And everyone loves to brag about their force production. But the reality is in life, we have way more force resistance and absorption that we need to do basically to build injury resilience, right? Most, uh, doctor, uh, not doctor, strength coach Robert O's remedios talks about most athletic injuries happen because of lack of ability to decelerate, not accelerate. Yeah. Right. Most, most people, uh, elderly people they don't fall down because they're walking they project themselves too far forward is they could decelerate themselves and they fall right yeah. so it's basically a great guard against injury but it allows you to be so much stronger too that's the base foundation for plyometrics is actually force absorption so yeah. while everyone loves to show themselves jumping onto these big boxes the actual the most important stuff is how you land yeah right or you know in a kettlebell swing it's the downward propulsion of the weight you know, in our max lunge, it's coming to the side and having to, having to react to the weight and absorb that force so we can redirect it. Hmm. it, it, it people struggle with it because it doesn't build a specific muscle, right? Yeah. But it builds so many qualities that will make your muscle work better. It's so important to develop. And there's nothing that will stop a training program faster than injury. Yeah. So if you get injured, like how many times, I can't tell you how many times I even have coaches, that are like, oh, I hurt my shoulder. Like, oh, what do you do hurting your shoulder? Like, they'll tell me, they're like, I can't wait to get back to that. I'm like, <laughs> like dude, like, it, that, it may not been the actual exercise. It may have been obviously the execution. It may have been also how they built up to it.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So they may not spend enough time on these different qualities, but it's such it's so valuable. And it tends to be very metabolically taxing. So if people are worried about conditioning or fat loss, it accomplishes that goal. We just do more than just make you tired, though. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned
0: that I can't wait to get back to that. So it just reminds me of a, a video I watched of Mike Boyle and like, he's, he's full of one-liners. Like he's, mm-hmm. it's nonstop with him. And he he said something, he was talking about running. So I won't get into this whole concept of mm-hmm. on on running and how he feels about it. But he basically said, yeah, it's like, you know, you have a person who's like, yeah, I just, I broke my finger. I slammed it in the car door. Can't wait for it to heal so I can do it again, right? Like like you can't wait to go back to the same thing that just injured you because, you know, I don't know. There's a goal that you haven't accomplished in it. And you see it a lot in um, you know, I would say novice powerlifters, people who are trying to get into powerlifting and they haven't set up the correct amount of, you know, force absorption. They haven't uh, they don't have the structural integrity in mm-hmm. all the joints that they're using in uh, some of those stabilizing muscles that they're trying to use specifically in the spine, right? Or even the pattern is off and they're just not lifting properly. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I injured my back. I just, ooh, once this back pain goes away, I'll get right back to it and it will be right, right. And yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal to me to think that they don't understand that. So how do, how do we better integrate something like force absorption type exercises
1: into programming? Well, for one, it can be very, very simple, right? And, and this is where the context becomes important. If if someone that hasn't been placing this as an emphasis in their program, the place I would start is just making sure everyone focuses on the eccentric action of a movement, just the lowering aspect, right? Mm-hmm. So for a lot of your clients, they just they need that foundation. So just learning, but like, for example, a lot of people on a deadlift, they'll pick up a deadlift and they'll just drop the weight. Yeah. Right. And they're like, well, why do you do that? They're like, well, you could hurt your back lowering it. I'm like, then, then you're probably going too heavy. Right, like yeah. you're missing half of the lift. And I mean, and you go, well, so-and-so powerlifter does it go again. Let's go to this. Are you so-and-so powerlifter? Are you doing yeah. this because you want to be healthy and fit and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's doing a lot of the eccentric action. It's also working in positions and environments that are not predictable. So Dr. David Frost, I don't know if he's still a professor at the University of Toronto, but he did a lot of work with tactical athletes, especially firefighters. And what was so interesting is that there's one study in particular he did with firefighters, and he had them go into two different programs. He had one in like he called it like traditional lifting, and he had one calling like movement oriented. And so the traditional lifting was actually pretty good, like things that you'd expect, like a squat, a lunge, a deadlift, a pull down, things like that, right? And the movement group was like lifts and chops and single-leg like deadlift and things like that. Now, if if we just went off the basis of how most people think, which is load is superior, and there's all this research showing that's not, yeah. If if we think it's loaded superior, then you would expect the group that lifted heavier, which was the traditional group. To get the better result as far as tasks for firefighters, right? Because they were gotten, quote unquote, stronger. Yeah. They didn't improve nearly as much as the movement orienting group that dealt with less weight, but was dealing with more of these elements that we're talking about resistance of force, different movement patterns, resi- uh, the different planes of motion, the chains, and so forth. They actually got stronger in, in, in firefighter specific tasks and were more actually resilient in their in their ability to uh endure the task, yeah and so he came up with this saying and i think it's so good it applies to i think what we're talking about so well keep the standard change the condition mm-hmm. so the standard is the movement pattern the condition yeah. is load volume all those progressive overload things like planes of motion uh you know all those different aspects uh, of the movement for example if we go back to that deadlift we do a coach asked me one time he goes i don't understand how do you deadlift your bags i'm like Well, we do it like this. And I showed him how he goes, no, no. I mean, like, I can deadlift this much on the barbell, but your bag is only going this heavy. I'm (laughs) like, oh, well, you're only thinking the deadlift in a very small medium. Yeah. We have 20 different ways to deadlift. Right. So like his head just explodes. He's like, well, I don't I don't even understand what that means. Yeah. But it's because he's zeroed in the deadlift being so particular to one thing. Like if we move in these different planes of motion, we're teaching force absorption, right? If I do a lateral step hip hinge, I have to decelerate stop myself catch myself and then retransmit force to come back up from the movement mm-hmm. so for a lot of people that's a great foundational example of force absorption for an athlete it might be more power-based right yeah they may have to learn how to like if we're doing a power clean when they come down the coming down parts equally as important they need to learn how to catch it with their hips yeah. once they learn how to do that i'm going to change their environment i'm going to make them do it in a different stance in different points of motion and so forth so there so there's different levels know just like you know power development for an 80 year old is not gonna be the same as a high school athlete or so forth so that's why having a system is so important because yeah a a system is just a guide i tell people it's not giving you the concrete answers do this this and this it's giving you a map yeah and as better at you get at reading the map the more you start answering those questions and realize there's even more things in between yeah right but you have to understand where the map's trying to take you
0: yeah yeah. And I think for a lot of people, I think that's the issue with when it comes to force absorption or, you know, uh, power exercises, right? Like, cause power production, when we're looking at like, not force production, but power production, it forces you to have that force absorption as part of that. Because if you don't, well, I guess not every exercise, if we take some medicine ball exercises out of that, but Right. So oftentimes to a lot of these power exercises, there is a force absorption component to it, but it often is, as you said, overlooked to, you know, I I need to lift more weight or I need to do this, but also they see, you know, okay, well, the only thing I know that's power production are things that I'm never going to do with a, you know, 60, 70, 80 year old, like, I'm not going to teach them how to start doing power cleans and, you know, snatches and those types of things at that age. So understanding that, as you said, that there are many, many layers to these power exercises, these force absorption exercises that we can use. Like I I love just using even just like step off uh, the bottom step and just, just land, absorb the force, stand for a second, stand back up, step back up onto the, like, you don't have to do anything crazy to
1: start off. It can be something very, very simple. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I high school athletes all the time. They, they, of course, they get fascinated with the internet and whatever, and what they see. And they're like, I want to do these plyos. I'm like, let's jump rope 1st like, why, why jump rope? I want to do plyos. I go, well, jump rope is a form of low-level plyo. So if you can't even jump a rope, sort of like the dodgeball thing, I'm not going to let you dodge that, you know, the ball. Like, you know, if, if you want to do the higher level stuff, then show me you own the, the foundational stuff. Yeah, uh, And that's so key because, again, the sexy stuff sort of brings people in, but you got to sort of work with them and go, realize you have to do this first. It's like if I went to uh, an example I gave, heard a long time ago that made so much sense for me is if you ever went to a dojo, you don't start as a black belt. Yeah. You have to demonstrate that you have all the skills of a white belt and so forth to go up. The gym should be kind of the same thing, but people get enamored with the, the sexy and they want to go do that. And they don't realize what, 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 what's required to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was my problem in music. I went and uh, so my family is very musical and I was very athletic and uh, athletics just kind of came naturally to me and I ended up going and... Started guitar lessons and I just wanted to play chords. Like, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to play a couple songs first before I learned how to, you know, do all the scales and everything. And uh, the guy starts teaching me scales. I'm like, this is the most boring. I'm playing Mary Had a Little Lamb with single chords. I'm like, nah. So I gave it up because that's like, to me, I'm like, no, I just, I wanted to go. And this is, I was young. I wanted to go to the end. I wanted to, you know, know how to play guitar before i learned all the basics of how like what i had to do right so i wanted to go backwards as you said you
1: use the dojo example well yeah i mean I, I, of course get mad at me all the time because i'll give them an example i'll say like do you have your clients in the first three months do kettlebell swings i'm like yeah of course they're great I'm like the, the question wasn't are kettlebell swings great and my yeah. question was do you teach them within the first three months to your clients They're like yeah i go you probably shouldn't do that mm-hmm. and they look at me like i'm crazy they're like well they're technically good they look at their technique go, they may be technically good, but their body doesn't understand how to control that weight correctly. Yeah. So let's take away the object. If we say, hey, I'm gonna project a weight out in front of your body, it's gonna have a long lever arm and have all this huge de- acceleration coming back upon you, or you need to decelerate. And if you just move just a little bit wrong, you can screw up your low back when you do it with your beginning clients, they'd probably be like, no, mm-hmm. but that's a couple swing, yeah. right? So it's just again, it's sometimes people get caught up like, I need to do this. No, you don't need to do anything, but what's right for your client. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, so with that, when we're talking about the program design part of things, uh, I know that you have kind of some principles that you follow. So let's just go through some principles of programming and program design and, you know, maybe different things that you, you always kind of start off with. Like when you're with new clients, you're always doing these types of things. Uh, obviously there's variability based off of Mm -hmm. the client that you have sitting in front of you, but let's just use, you know, if you've got the average individual comes in, no real medical or injury history, you know, middle age, just looking to get healthier, hasn't been in the gym in a while. What are some of the principles to the programs that you design?
1: I think one is that like, you know, we're going to have, before we get to the main focus session, we're going to do drills just to get their body to work more efficiently just to build up some of the chain integration that may have been lost either due to injury, lack of activity, whatever it may be. And we're gonna do that in very low level environments. So a lot, it's where a lot of the ground stuff comes in uh, just so we can take away the complexity of the movement because we want them just to focus on a couple of key things. And when their body has sort of that, you know, the, the, the startup to the computer is going, then we can hit the main part of the program. And the main part of the program, to me, it's super simple. It's like, we just start off with the movement patterns. Right. And I don't need to see every single movement pattern reflected in that workout, but I probably want to avoid a couple of pitfalls. One is, you know, movement redundancy. So, for example, if someone has a deadlift, a power clean, a cowbell swing, and a bent row, well, those are all hip hinges. Yeah. So I don't need that type of redundancy in my program. I may pick one of those and then I'll pick, you know, a push, a pull, a squat, a lunge, or anti rotate. And then over time, what happens, and you probably know this, is that some of these exercises will cross over the movement patterns. So yeah. for example, if I'm doing a half kneeling arc press in our system, half kneeling is really foundational to lunging. So yes, I'm pressing, but I'm also learning how to stabilize myself during a position of lunge. Yeah. So the best exercises in my book are ones that start to cross over multiple movement patterns. Mm-hmm. But if you do a workout and let's say you don't get all the movement patterns you want, then it's easy. The next workout, you just emphasize the ones you did prioritize the last workout. Yeah. So, you know, if you, didn't, if you didn't have certain exercises, movement patterns, you can always put them in. So it just starts to cycle our workouts really easily. And within that movement pattern, so let's take, I don't know, squatting maybe as a movement pattern. I'm gonna look, okay, does this need to be a bilateral squat? Uh, have we just exhausted some, str- you know, foundational strength in just the typical bilateral squat? And can we introduce some other variables like resisting movement? Or do we need to progress the movement and progression could be I wanna change the position of the load up their body. So for example, we do, we start everyone out on a, a press out squat. And the reason, uh, basically think about, you're about to squat, the weight's in by your belly button, you're pulling the weight apart, and then you're, as you're squatting down, you're slowly pressing the weight out. Is there a counterbalance to that? Yeah, but it's not the same as what we're doing. Because if I just hold the weight out and drop down, people don't squat as well. Yep. So a counterbalance is not the main thing. What we're trying to do is create what's called proximal stability. So the easiest way to think about that, going back to our spine example, if my spine feels more stable, my brain will turn off the brakes on my shoulders and my hips more. Mm-hmm. So people usually get better range of motion. They learn where to go um, because a lot of coaches, they'll have someone, an inexperienced lifter. They'll hold on to like a TRX or a suspension trainer or, or a rack, and they'll have them squat. And they squat well, and then they try to have them squat without the rack or the suspension trainer. They can't squat
0: yeah.
1: because they didn't teach them how to control their body in space. Mm-hmm. So this teaches them how to control their of space, but I can only hold so much weight out in front of my body as I do this. So yeah. once I pattern that, now I'll bring the weight closer to my body. I'll grab it into what we call bear hug. So now the, basically the, I'm very literal. The name is basically what it is. The re- weight's running vertically with your body. You're wrapping your arms around and you're actively trying to break the weight apart. Breaking the weight apart, I engage my lats. I get that stability. The weight's also helping me, but I'm actually able to get under more load. Yeah. If I build that up over time, then I can change the way I can put the crooks in my arms now, I have a weight that's trying to pull me forward more. So, I have to actually pull back, make it more part of my body. The weight's working more against me. I may have a bigger dimension, a body that's wanting to pull me forward. So, my body's working harder overall. So, that's a way I could build progression, right? I could change the, the, the load position or I can change the body position. If I just go ahead and take one foot in my squat stance and move it heel toe, raise up the back heel, I've slightly changed your stability. I want to see the same squat, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, we could do all, we could do split squats, we can do lateral squats, we can do all these different squat patterns. So now I have ways, I have a day I can focus just on the bilateral position and building that up. I can change incremental stability, I can change the complete planes of motion. And when you start combining all of them, it sounds overwhelming, but it's just a different, almost like you're learning a different language. It's not complicated, it's just different, right? But you start to see, wow, I can have variability, but I can have it with great purpose. Right? I mean, I had a client one time, she's trained with me for four years till she understood. She's like, every time I'm here, you make me squat one way or another. But to her, it was a very different exercise every time because it was just a different form of the squat. Yeah, which is actually amazing to me that a client actually
0: clued into that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. we're doing a squat every years, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we're doing a squat every time. It took, yeah, four years to figure that out. Yeah. And, and I love that as the, like the way that you're talking because the, and the sandbag, and I, and I know you feel this way too, but the sandbag is um, just so versatile and how it allows you to create that proximal stability. Cause you can't do that with, you can't do that with a medicine ball or a barbell or uh, you know, dumbbells or anything like that, because like you can have the bear hug, have the handles pull apart and you have the ability to create that, that, uh, that as you said, that proximal stability. So kind of taking away the need to do all of the uh, assisted exercises that we often see at the beginning of training. And yeah, as you said, a lot of times the pattern that comes out of that isn't actually as good as the pattern that you saw while you were in it. So I like that. And you
1: you bring up an important point because like when we go to, when we usually teach our our programs live, there'll be a coach and then they've gone to a different program and I encourage that go to do lots of different things. And they'll be like, Well, we learned this there. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But what do you think? Mm -hmm. Right. And what they're really asking me is they feel bad about themselves because they just learned a more efficient way to accomplish what they were taught in a different program. Yeah. And I'm like, you should never feel bad for learning or Mm -hmm. trying to learn because having that experience helps you have a better filter too. This may work for a specific case, but most of the time I'm going to lean on this right but i think like trainers they're like they feel bad that they just spent money on a program they feel like wait a minute i just did that if i don't use that information then it was bad it's like no now you have more you have a better toolbox not just more of a toolbox yeah. so like there might be a situation that does arise and like this may not cure everything but wow it may it really raise the efficiency level so you don't necessarily have to spend time on all that other stuff that you felt pressured to do and that took up so much time of your workout yeah you can streamline things a lot more efficiently Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we
0: were talking about at the beginning of the podcast where they're looking for the one right answer. And it's like, well, they're different, they're different tools or different processes, or they've got, you know, different principles within them. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. Right. Right. You know, you may go back to using that with said client at a specific time, right? This is just a different way to think about things, to look at things. Um, Yeah. I like that. So, Within the, you mentioned variability. And this is always a thing that I think for, once again, new trainers, is very, even actually, okay, even experienced trainers, this is a very difficult thing to to balance is this give and take between variability. So having like too little variability in your program and always doing the same things and having too much variability and the body just, it's chaos, right? Like the body just can't adapt to it how do you balance that? Or how do you teach the people who come into your program? How do you teach them to balance that within their programs themselves?
1: You know, I've never really had clients that were like bored. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, we all know they're, they're, the first week or two of teaching a new program, there's so much learning going on. And I think one, and, and you've probably have experienced this yourself, one f- piece of feedback I'd always get to my clients is I have to be so much more thoughtful about what I'm doing when I'm with you yeah right they, you typically they think of exercise and there's just a mind just get through it right yeah. but then i'm asking them to focus on very specific tasks and so they have to be more engaged so they find that actually very interesting and and actually even fatiguing mm-hmm. right uh so if i if someone trains with me in a perfect world let's say three days a week which is kind of hard sometimes for people to get i have the program schedule so they're not doing the same thing each day of the week but by the time we come back to that workout there's a little familiarity but they want to get better at it yeah right so uh, one i guess to answer your question one of the things i have to do as a coach is build value in what i'm giving them how mm-hmm. is this helping them the goal that they've expressed to me because like people don't get bored doing lots of things that they think it's going to help them or yeah. they think it's enjoyable or they think they're being successful at it so you know it's one of those things too if if i have a person doing an exercise and i always say a workout program isn't etched in stone, right? Mm. It's organic. If I have someone doing exercise in the first two weeks of it, they're just killing it. And I wanna make it a little bit harder. I can do that. I can make that little progression because I know what my principles are of how to yeah. do that. And to them, it's a totally different exercise,
0: yeah,
1: right? And I get to say to them, wow, you did so well on X, now we're doing Y. And they're like, they feel good about themselves. Like they wanna do more. So I think it's, it's just like every coach and a sports coach has to develop buy-in from their players. You have gotta develop buy-in. Yeah. Like, if you're just if you're talking at people, if you're getting, if you're not making them part of the process and it's their program, then I don't think you get that buy-in and you're not gonna get that cloth of excitement. Like I always tell people like, no I've never had a client that came to me, without, you know what I want to do, Josh? I want to improve my trap bar deadlift. <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever. Right. Yeah. But I see all these coaches that post, oh my client just hit a PR and their are and then trap bar deadlift, isn't that great? Fantastic. And you see the client smiling, they're all excited. And the client didn't have that goal, but they're they're Playing off of your excitement, they feel like they just did something special. Yeah. They have no reference point to that. They like other than your excitement, so therefore it was good. They feel successful at something. So yeah. it goes back to what we talked about too. Like most people don't think they can do it, right? Yeah. Goodness. So it, that's a way of building buy in, right? They didn't care about that exercise. If you're just like, hey, you know, Adam, we're going to do another round of these trap bar deadlifts. They're like, okay, <laughs> like they wouldn't care. But if you build up like, oh, wow, look how much you've improved, or oh, that's so awesome you did that. Like, really? I, it is? Like, that's how you think you build that adherence because they rarely it's only the stuff that usually they hate. They yeah. go, we're doing this again, but like, you know, you have to again develop that buy-in or at least build value in why they have to do something they dislike to do. Yeah. So I don't, I think it becomes less and less about the actual workout program, the methods and the exercises and more about the communication to the client because they, I mean, I, I'd have people when I had my gym, they'd be like, Oh, can I come and see your gym? I'm not sure. I don't know what you're going to do after the first five minutes. Cause it was like, you know, pretty much what people would see nowadays, uh, yeah. back 15 years ago. It doesn't, not doesn't take long to tour, but something I'd ask them when they came there, I go, what did you want to see? Yeah. Right. Why did you come here and what did you want to check out? What did it, was it that you wanted to see in the gym that you wanted them to then use? So I think it's just building that rapport with the client to find out why they're really there. Yeah. Right. And find out what they really want to accomplish. And then having a way to communicate like i've done it i'm sure you've fallen for it like when you're a younger coach you go to a program you vomit information on your client that they don't care about because <laughs> yeah. you are just so excited to share everything yeah but then you learn to i'm only going to share what's relevant to them like we yeah. were talking about earlier like with the fact like how do you get people to do functional training when their are is just muscle building looking good i can do both yeah right and i just got to have a good way of communicating that in a way that's relevant to them yeah
0: yeah. And I think that's a big piece that in a lot of introductory uh, personal training programs that is missing is the communication side. They teach you all of the knowledge, or I guess the foundational knowledge yeah. that you need, right? The anatomy, the physiology, the biomechanics, and but you miss, okay, how. and I often say this, like I, I'm teaching you all these anatomical terms. I'm teaching you you know, uh, movement terms and spatial terminology, you're not sharing this with your clients. This is not something that, that you're going on about, you know, talking about, okay, so superior to this. And like, that's not what you're doing with your clients. This is so you can communicate with other trainers so that you have that same kind of level of knowledge. And also so you can read research and understand research because you're obviously going to want to be doing that. But like in any occupation, you want more knowledge and a deeper knowledge than the client has themselves, right? Like you want to be able to have that so you can actually explain things. But you have to be able to communicate, as you said, at a kind of lay term basic level to your client so that they can understand and you have to make it relevant. I think we could talk all day about, <laughs> about um. Trainers who do powerlifting with their client because they're a powerlifter, exactly. and they think that their client then should because they enjoy powerlifting, so the client will. And then, as you said, PRs, and the client's like,
1: I, I, I guess it's good. I don't know. Like, yeah, and that's the thing with our, you know, people. I always joke. I always, when I'm on interviews, like, so inevitably on social media, if someone gets mad at me, they'll they'll take a shot at the sand or ultimate sandbag be like dude like it's an inanimate object you're not gonna get like, under my skin about it like it's just a tool <laughs> now if you say something about my wife or my dogs maybe we we'll i've issued but like so my point is like i don't i don't ma- magically default to our ultimate sandbag because that's what i created that's what i want everyone to do yeah i largely default to it because it's just easier for me to teach the things that you say you want to learn and i find that you need yeah so that it's like a different like you were saying with the power loop, like that was my my first time entering in strength conditioning. Our strength coach had a big power. He was a powerlifter, and his background was powerlifter. So, guess what every athlete did in some form or another, they were powerlifters. Yeah. And that's like why I crack up when people go, "Well, this is what we we we've always done." I go, "But you have to understand, strength conditioning it wasn't a profession. It started off like it was it was powerlifters and Olympic lifters." I go, "Well, you guys lift a lot, so you become strength coaches." so what do they do, powerlifting and Olympic lifting. So it's like. Yeah, but not for the reason that you think we've always done it this way. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, so just being mindful of time, uh, I want to go through. I always do like this little lightning round at the end of every podcast. And it's three questions, kind of first things that come to mind. You don't have to overthink it at all. Uh, if you want to explain a little bit about it, you, f- you can feel free to. But uh, yeah, so first question is the top three books that you have read on any topic
1: uh you know i try to read books from a lot of different topics so if you're talking you know training gosh i'd have to say i mean no one's actually read the whole book but like super training you need to have a foundational understanding it's a textbook right yeah yeah so when it comes to like training stuff i think people are disappointed i I read most I, i refer mostly to textbooks yeah not that they have all the answers but there's obviously a lot of good science to what they have and you have to extrapolate. So I think you gotta go with super training uh, and then you gotta go into, you know, I think anatomy trains is really important just to understand functional anatomy versus what Boyle calls a dead person anatomy. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's two, and then there, there are fun books, you know, you can get on different topics. I think, you know, if you're talking about like professional development, one I would say is seven, it's an old book, right? Some Habits of Highly Effective People. It's one that I think people can keep going to. I think so many other books were based on that book. Yeah. Um, but it's a book that changed me as a young coach. Um, there's a book called uh, The Death of Expertise, which I think is a really interesting book. It basically explains why people don't like experts. <laughs> and... Uh, it's really fascinating because obviously it's very relevant to our times now where everyone's a social media expert and why, why the true experts are sort of getting pushed out. Yeah. Uh, so is this why yeah. you were offended when I said you were a guru? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just never think of myself that way. Yeah. Um, and then I think another great one is the body keeps the score. I think that's really important for trainers to read. It's basically how trauma, the body holds into trauma and, and that relates to both you know, emotional and physical and how a lot of issues that people come to us with are actually traumas-based in things that aren't related to what they were doing. Hmm. Like, you know, um, there was a crazy stat, something like 90% of uh, people that came to, like, a, a training program had some form of abuse in their back, background. Hmm. Uh, wow. I know one, one, one expert I had to listen to during a conference, he said he worked with a lot of fitness professionals and bodybuilders. He said 99% of the female fitness competitors he worked with had some type of uh, physical abuse in the background. Wow. Uh, And so it's like a lot of times that helps us ask better questions. Sometimes we find out what's really going on with people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're not capable of maybe doing the treatment, but it makes us far more aware of things that are happening to our clients. It's like, you know, I hate when trainers go, you know, you know, you you need eight hours of sleep. I'm like, everyone knows that. Everyone knows broccoli is better than candy bars. Yeah. But there's a reason people don't do it. Yeah. You know, so it's a lot deeper than just, I didn't know that. You know, so that book really gets into some really interesting concepts. So there's a, more than three books, but hopefully those are books that people will take time to check out.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple, couple that I haven't actually read yet. So Death to, Death to Expertise I haven't read and Body Keeps the Score. So I'll have to check those out. Uh, top three mentors along your journey thus far.
1: Uh, I'd have to give Robert Dos Remedios one. I mean, he's been awesome from a sports performance background. You know, I don't train athletes, I would say for the majority of what I do. So he can give me a whole different context and his, his insights into like HIT training, I think are really innovative. I wish people would understand them better because people usually don't do HIIT correctly. Uh, he's a big one. I think Alan Cosgrove has been a big mentor in from a, like a business standpoint and development, uh, that type of thing, understanding, you know, the business side of what we do. Um, and I would say a mentor, that's a tough one because there's so many people that obviously influence you. I'm going to say, I mean, great cook is a, a has been a, a good mentor, uh, especially recently as my, some of my personal issues have degraded, just challenged me to think differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it, it, and I, and I really like being around people that challenge me to think differently, yeah. uh, whether it's to find more information, to reaffirm what I believe more confidently or to find information that actually helps me change my mind and grow. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And
0: then the, the final one is, uh, what piece of advice would uh, Josh of today give 20 year old Josh?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I get asked this a lot. And I think I came up with a better answer than I normally do. I think one, the, the, the advice I would give is hang in there. Uh, the reason being is because I think, you know, anyone who has children, I don't have children, but you know, my brothers do. If you try to give advice to younger people that haven't had the experiences you've had, they're probably going to ignore them largely, number one. And two, they won't appreciate them because they haven't had the experiences. I think the experiences, both good and bad are what shape us to what we are today. Mm-hmm. So there's so much learning to be had though those. I wouldn't want to deter myself from going through that. Are there things maybe I like to tweak along the way? Maybe, but I don't know if I've come out to where I am at the end of the day, if I had done that. So I think it's just to stay on the path. Um, yeah. And just, you know, and remain humble and open-minded to things. That would be the best advice I think I can give a younger self.
0: Nice. Yeah. I like that. That You know, we are, but the sum of our experiences, right? So we wouldn't be who we are today. So if, maybe if you hate who you are today, maybe you change everything. <laughs> maybe, but yeah. but uh, yeah, I think you don't necessarily always want to learn lessons the hard way. Sometimes some lessons are better learned without having to learn, like, you know, touching... Uh, my little brother once put the back of his hand onto an iron and burnt the entire back of all of his fingers and he's got scar tissue and everything. That's probably a lesson you'd rather not have <laughs> learned when he was four, uh, you know, but um, you know, there's other things like experiences that you know sometimes people just have to you just have to go through it and you have to learn it the hard way. And it's the same yeah. thing in training, right? like even even as a as a personal trainer, you're looking for all the answers before you start. There's so much information. it's, paralysis by analysis with programming. You're like, what the heck do I do? And it's just like, you'll learn what works, what doesn't with certain clients and other clients and how to communicate. And you'll lose some clients, you'll gain some clients. And
1: yeah, I I feel very fortunate that I didn't grow up in the industry when social media was ever present. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's a lot much harder thing to deal with because everyone puts forth the good things. Yeah. So I think it's having that awareness of the profession, knowing that yes, that's, that's a snippet of someone's life versus feeling like I'm failing because I'm not having the same experiences of everybody that I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: All right, so um, products, uh, projects that you're currently working on, uh, anything that you would like to promote, this is your time to kind of plug it. I know we talked about DVRT and uh, we've talked about sandbag training, but just where can they go find more about you, the products that you have?
1: Yeah. So our website, uh, dvrtfitness.com, we have tons of free information there. We have a blog that we update almost uh, daily. We always want to lead with education because, you know, when people go, oh, Josh, you know, you want me to buy a sandbag? I'm like, no, I want you to use our ultimate sandbag for a specific reason. Hmm. So the education leads everything. So we have tons of online educational uh, courses and certifications people can take on everywhere from, you know, uh, our, our programming and development, like how we teach people to, uh, my wife has like a healthy knees program and we're developing a back one. We have uh, how to integrate uh, all these tools into a system type of program too. like how do we use these tools? when do we use them for what progression? Um, we have workout programs so if people just want to see like, hey, how do you what does this actually look like at the end of the day? Yeah. people can do that. And then obviously we have our ultimate sandbags. And I think just you know people often go, you know, what which one's the right one for me to start with? We have our strength, which is, has blue webbing and our power that is red. The biggest thing with an understand about ultimate sandbags is that everything is done with very specific details in mind, mm-hmm. meaning most people if they think of a weight and they think a five-pound dumbbell is gonna function the same as a 50-pound dumbbell. Yeah. In our world, a smaller ultimate sandbag is gonna function differently than a bigger one. Mm-hmm. So dimension plays a role in our system, but if you focus on those two sizes, you can sort of complement both ends of the spectrum. But if you under it's more important that you understand the system because then you understand the intent. Yeah. And then you know everything from which handles do we use from which exercise and what how do we integrate the the, uh or how do we use our body with the the tool they're so important to actually gain the benefit because I tell people I don't want you to buy it and have it sit there. I want you to use it to solve a problem. Yeah. So we have a a, lots of sales that go on so people can check out the sales but they ever have questions they have specific goals or advice If you email us to the website, it goes to the right people, you'll get a really great answer in return.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come on and uh, just share some very valuable information with uh, myself and our audience. So I really appreciate that. Thank
1: you so much, Adam. Thanks
0: for having me. I appreciate it. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.